Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture, hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style, downloading to you from New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. For this episode, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, but also fashion director, retailer, style editor, and I would say overall menswear deity, Josh Peskowitz. Welcome, Josh. Thank you, Doug. Although um, I can attest that I've done a few of those things. Deity is deity, pretty... okay. demigod, demigod. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Let's talk about one of those things that you've done a lot of. You know, you have sold menswear uh, yes. through traditional wholesale uh, mm-hmm. at at Blooming, notably at Bloomingdale's, uh, through what I would call boutique brick and mortar, with the apex of that being Culver City's Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, and from a major D 2 C platform, and and one of my firm's clients, uh, Moda Operandi. We're at a time that's rough for all three of those. Um, certainly wholesale being the, the most depressed and we've seen, you know, some major retail bankruptcies, you know, what's, what's broken and what's the opportunity right now as you see it. So I think if you're looking at it from the perspective of the brand, uh, I still think that all three channels are really important, right? So you have either, you know, the multi-brand retail, which, you know, in my mind, I think of multi-brand retail as being, you know, Bloomingdale's and Moda Operandi. And I think of direct-to-consumer as being either your digital or your brick-and-mortar footprint. Yeah. Um, I think that both of them are still extremely important. Now, when you look at what multi-brand retail does for you, it puts your brand in front of more people, Right it allows you to sort of cultivate a sense of place within the, you know, within your peer group, right? Like where are you seated on the floor or, you know, like what brands you put next to in the search um, or the merchandising of the website. Um, And those are still really important, you know, ways to, to, to gain customer exposure, to get eyeballs. Right. And, And the downside to that is that you don't get to control your message. Right. Um, there are some, there are some department stores, there's some websites that are extremely good at crafting a image. Uh, that's something that we prided ourselves on at, at Mode Operandi for the men's side in particular. Like when we were doing that, we really were able to help put brands into a context that they wouldn't put themselves into normally. Right. And so yeah. like, that was one of the selling points of what we were doing. Cause we knew we weren't going to be as big as, you know, matches or, or essence from a volume perspective, but we could give a different point of view, right? And that's things that brands are always looking for is like different ways to interpret what they do. So that's important. Um, As I mentioned though, the downside is, you know, number one, you're stuck with the seasonal system, the delivery system, uh, less so online than you are in the traditional department stores. And we can get into that. Markdown cadence is something that you don't really have control over. Promotional activities is something you don't have control over. And there's plenty of reasons why, you know, we're not colluding on prices, which you could probably speak to better than me. But, you know, it is it is an important part of, you know, the customer protections that are out there. Antitrust laws, indeed. But yes, you're right. Exactly. 
And, uh, you know, so, so those are the detractors for it. And, you know, the reason that we've gotten ourselves into the situation that we're in is, you know, starting in the early 2000s, a lot of department stores just wanted deliveries earlier and earlier and earlier and more and more and more, um, you know, so that they could have something sooner. And, you know, we've sort of, we've sort of grown ourselves into the situation where you can't buy a winter coat when it's cold and you can't buy a swimsuit when it's hot, right? You can only buy a swimsuit when it's freezing. You can only buy a winter coat when it's hundred degrees outside. So in this chase to be earlier and earlier. And so, you know, like that fundamentally sucks and it sucks for everybody. It sucks for the customers. It sucks for the brands and it sucks for ultimately it sucks for the bottom line of the retailers. And, and so I think that a lot of people had been, trying to figure out ways to address this situation. Um, but it was like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And then COVID was the iceberg that we finally hit. And people are actually like looking at ways to address the, this delivery system and how screwed up it's been for years. Um, all that goes away when you talk about direct to consumer, right? You're in control of your message. You are interacting directly with the customer you are capturing a higher margin for yourself, right? You're not right. having to pay right. the middleman there. Um, and all of those things are extremely beneficial, but what you don't have at that point is the exposure to the customer. And so, you know, really because of the fact that it's a duopoly online, you know, it's either Facebook or Google that you're gonna be advertising with. And the fact that the incremental cost of doing, of continuing to get more eyeballs in that manner between that duopoly and because of the uh, concentration of brands that have launched into that space, you know, like every time we talk about the success of a Warby Parker, or we talk about, you know, an Allbirds or something, or Away, or any of these things that are direct to consumer brands that don't really deal with the wholesale side of the business, a lot of them are like juicing their numbers and juicing their revenue by buying more and more ads, which makes it more expensive for everyone, because right. there's really only two places where you can go. And so the incremental cost of doing that, you know, at first, like the conversion, if you have no customers to get to a thousand customers, it's worth every penny, right? But then, and I'm just making these numbers up, but like from a thousand customers to a hundred thousand customers isn't as efficient, right? And then from a hundred thousand customers to a million customers, you're actually losing money, right? So, so it chasing growth. And so, you know, like that in and of itself is also an unsustainable model. So, you know, when I'm talking to brands and when I'm talking to people about, you know, what to do, I mean, you know, go with the Buddha, find the middle path, you know, there's always going to be, you know, a, a segment of your business that should be wholesale with the right partners, key partners who, you know, respect your brand and your brand messaging and, you know, want to elevate or put you into a different light. And then, you know, use that for marketing. Um, you know, some of the direct to consumer channels are augmented by, you know, these marketplaces that you can sort of participate right. in. And we can talk about that more later. Um, but then also you need to make sure that you have a strong, strong, um, e-commerce backbone, but if you're in a position to do it, I'm still very bullish on brick and mortar. Even though we're all stuck in our houses, I think that key placement of stores, if you're a brand, is still hugely, hugely beneficial in terms of a brand acquisition, uh, excuse me, a customer acquisition um, play, and also just from like a marketing and branding perspective, because that's really yeah. where you can still be interactive. That, that, that's my take on it. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's kind of like the playbook from a decade ago, right? Where you were looking at where your expenditures were. If you take that and you kind of rearrange some of those blocks and say, look, being in Saks Fifth Avenue is good for marketing. 
So maybe we're even going to take a hit here, but that's a marketing expense. Being on the corner of you know, a, a, a real retail thoroughfare in Los Angeles or Portland or London or wherever it is you want to be and your brand speaks to, maybe another marketing expense. And you're right. And it's interesting that we really are talking antitrust law. I mean, the duopoly of where you can go to get eyeballs is it just favorite, you know, there was a moment when D to C was an opportunity for brands or influencers who maybe had some, you know, a, a million built-in followers and they could get those eyeballs and then they could get financed. But today, competing for those eyeballs is big, big business. You've got to be well, well-funded, you know, past your series C, D round to even step into that, that ring yeah. and compete for those eyeballs. Because if you're starting up a brand now and expecting some Facebook boost to give you a hundred, you know, eyeballs on your product and drive you to their website. There's so much noise right now that I think it's interesting. You know, the barriers to entry were low for a second. Mm -hmm. Now they're higher than ever for a direct to consumer brand. I totally agree. And you know, the same way that the gatekeeper used to be Barney's. Right. You know, it used to be like, if you're a young brand, you know, wholesale is the only way to grow. You need to get into Barney's. Uh, you know, you get like your little corner shop and like, honestly, they were going to buy like eight SKUs, you know, or whatever it is. But, you know, like I remember when I was working in editorial before I even got involved in the retail side of things, you know, like after high school. Right. But when I got involved with the retail side of things, obviously my equations changed a little bit. But when I was working in editorial, when I was at style.com, when I was at Esquire, when I was at any of these places, I would meet a young person who has a new brand. And I'd be like, this is cool. Where do you sell it? It was always the question. If they said Barney's, we could write the article. Right. Because it was, it, it meant. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you, this raises an interesting question. I mean, do you think that it was better? Like, were those the salad days? Not, not just for new brands, but for, because obviously those buyers at Barney's had some cred. They had some editorial cred. They knew what they were doing. They would push boundaries where they felt they could push boundaries they kept a nice stable of high quality brands in there. You know, the duopoly that we're talking about, they don't give a fuck, right? Yeah, they just care about this. So what do you think about days, that? The salad days were before that, really. I think that the salad days were like when Barney's first turned into a luxury store, yes, but like also when Bloomingdale's was under Cal Ruttenstein and, you know, you could create these moments right where there would just be so much energy and you could you could take a brand that either didn't exist you know because like it was really the 60s when we started talking about ready to wear in a real way anyway right mm -hmm. so like the rise of the department store certainly started you know 50 years before that you know 100 like 60 years before the 1960s but it was really the 70s 80s and 90s when like department stores were at the top of their um, brand building power and that's where like the American billion dollar fashion companies like Ralph Lauren and Donna Karen and you know the Europeans like Giorgio Armani I mean you know like listen the ones from the 50s and the 60s you know Dior and all the and Gucci and all these brands that are now sort of and Pierre Cardin all these ones that are now controlled by the big conglomerates from Europe America never really developed that culture but they did build some really 
big brands, you know? And like a lot of them are now considered mid-market, but like- Calvin uh, Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, Tommy you know Hilfiger, the- Michael Kors, you know, uh, Donna Karen, Liz Claiborne. I mean, you know, Perry- And Josh, Ellis. will we, will we see that again? Or is that, are those essentially dinosaurs, the billion dollar lifestyle brand? I don't think, I think the market is too segmented at this point for you to really get there again. You know, but that's the ambition. I speak to young people all the time that are starting brands or have had brands for like eight or nine years. And like, they want to be billion dollar brands. And I think being a billion dollar brand is certainly still achievable. But being like a $20 billion brand, you know, I think like Ralph's revenue somewhere like around 13 billion a year and they're losing money, right? Like, I don't think that that's going to happen again. Um, I, you know, I think you need to bring together a group. I think you need to have an amalgamation of, of, of a number of brands to be able to get to that size. And that's, you know, obviously what LVMH and Caring have done, uh, Regemont as well. And what like Coach is sort of trying to do, it seems. Yeah, like- yeah. Maybe speak to the American attempts at that. And that would be Capri Holding, i.e. Yeah. Michael Kors, mm-hmm. and Tapestry, i.e. Coach. Do you think the Americans are barking up the right tree or are they kind of failing in it? Because early returns are not great. I think it's difficult. I think it's difficult to, t- to, to up position your brand, you know? And because of the world that we lived through in those 2000s, right? After the salad days, as we were describing where, you know, promotional activities, and a lot of it was for survival, you know, like after the dot-com crash, after September 11th, and then after, you know, the, the financial crisis of 2008, like a lot of this was survival mode for the for the big department stores, which was still the you know the dominant sort of form of commerce at the time, right? Before Amazon and before Walmart, you know, and but these brands are so intrinsically tied to that department store cycle here in the United States. Um, very early on, a lot of the 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 European prestige brands pulled out or went into a concession model, you know. So like, right you know, they had much better control over their pricing and discounts were, you know, sort of curtailed. And, you know, with the exception of probably Saks, Neiman's and, and, and Barney's, which was such a small, you know, store footprint, you know, globally anyway, you know, most of these big conglomerate brands started opening their own stores, you know, and focused on that or having their concessions, as I mentioned, rather than, you know, going heavier and heavier into the assortment in the, the actual department stores, while the American brands, be it Coach, be it Michael Kors, Tommy Hilfiger, Ralph, whatever it is, like they were still super dependent on that wholesale aspect of the business. And so like got involved in the promotional and the discounting side of things, which ultimately cheapened the brand. Now at the time, who knew, right? Who knew that it would progress to the level that it is, but you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to get somebody to buy something at full price that they know will be marked down in three weeks. Yeah, Yeah. And that was the situation for a while, you know? So it's like, if, if the if the brand positioning, you know, and meanwhile, Louis Vuitton, for better or for worse, I personally think for worse, they don't put things on sale, they burn it. Well, that's certainly for worse. That is certainly for worse. But, you know, like at the time when we were looking at it, you know, 20 years ago, we were like, man, how gangster is that? They just burn the shit instead of, you know, <laughs> instead of putting it on sale. And, and, that, and that was like sort of that was their mentality. And I don't think the Americans ever matched that. So now being where they are, it is difficult to retrain your customer to say like, without lowering your prices to say like, oh, we're going to lower our prices. So you want to make it more expensive and you want to say we don't get a discount, but that's what we're used to from you as a brand. 
it's difficult, you know, and, and you know, the, listen, you know, Michael Kors and that group buying Versace, let's see how that works out. I think, you know, early returns are actually pretty good for Versace, but, you know, I don't know how much that really affects the bottom line for the, for the group in total. Well, it, but you've had experience at the high end of menswear. Those men who walk in sort of want the store closed down. Maybe speak to that. And do you think there is a, a future, even if it's a niche for brands that can cater to that? It's certainly niche, but, you know, you would be surprised, Doug, you would be surprised, both in men's and women's, how much of the bottom line of some of our retail friends and retail partners are supported by a very, very small number of people. Yeah. Right. So when we're talking about some of these online retailers, when we're talking about some of these specialty stores in particular, but also some branches of big department stores and like forget about it with Bergdorf's and those, it is a very, very small clientele base that is spending the money that's keeping the lights on in those places. You know, and so there's always going to be a uh, there's always going to be a customer who wants something extremely special in menswear. It's usually a customer who wants something related to tailored clothing or, you know, like some sort of special accessory, be it a shoe or watch band or a leather leather case or something like this. And, you know, being able to create something of the highest caliber that is unique to that individual, if that's their taste. Then that's, then that's certainly a business. Now, I would be hesitant to say that there's a whole lot of brands that could tap into that that are like brand new. I think you need to have like a completely different approach. Like, cause you know, if you don't like, why would you buy a 25,000, you know, with the exception being like, let's say for very different reasons, like a Mike Amiri or an Emily Bodie, Right. But like for very different reasons, we can talk about that. But like, you know, if you're going to be buying a suit, like why are you going to go to this brand new suit maker when you can get anything you want made by X on Savile Row or this person from Naples, you know, who has, you know, decades of experience, if not hundreds of years in the yeah. family, you know, and, and that could be from a conglomerate brand like a Brioni or, you know, even a Berluti or it could be from, you know, like, it could be from somebody smaller, like a Salvatore Piccolo or, you know, Isaiah or, you know, something like that that's a little more niche. But, you know, there's always going to be an aspect of their business, Brunello's business, Brunello Cuccinelli's business, a huge amount of custom work goes into that. And that's sort of part and parcel to the menswear experience, you know, trunk shows and, and special events where people come in and do made to measure um, and, you know, pick out their fabrics and and feel special and know that they're going to get it. Gabbard Atelier with Gucci up in Harlem. A hundred percent. And, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about Amiri or both, like Emily was really able, has been able to create this, this experience where there's such scarcity. Most of the things that she makes, at least at the outset, were one of a kind, right? And so you are able to create things in one-offs or custom made for certain individuals. And, you know, then you see, LeBron James wearing it, or you see, uh, you know, uh, Michael Peel wearing it, or, or, you know, any of these people who, who, who have like a big audience, and then that helps propel the brand. I mean, you know, you see Leon Bridges or Kendrick Lamar, any of these people wear Bodhi, and, you know, you know that that piece that they're wearing, you can't get. Yeah. But that custom experience is available for certain customers. 
and you know and and the rest of it is sort of buoyed by that you know and and you know the same thing very different extremely different you know aesthetic choices and you know ideas behind it but amiri you know like this dude probably makes he can make a whole python leather jacket for you and it'll cost you 40 grand or whatever and but it'll be one of a kind and if you have the money to spend on that and that's what you want then god bless you you know i mean yeah. i personally with the python not for me but you know as long Maybe as you with a three-piece version well, let's, let's talk about let's talk about tailored clothing let's talk about let's talk about what we traditionally call the suit mm -hmm. you know there have been the prognostications of the death of the suit for as long as you and i have been involved in menswear yeah. uh, we both i think appreciate what the cut and drape of a suit does for a typical man's body mm -hmm. you know it, it makes us all look pretty good i think you I've, I've heard you wax poetic about what a suit can do for a man's psyche, you know, and confidence. Um, what is your prediction for the future of the suit, particularly in a day and age where we were already business casual seven days a week? Now we're appearing mainly, you know, from the waist up for the foreseeable future. What's what's going on with suiting and, and what where does it where does its future lie? I don't think the suit's going away. Even before any of this happened, we saw a difference in the way men were treating suits and the way designers were designing suits. And it had to do with comfort primarily, yeah. right? The idea then was I'm going from work to the kids soccer game, then two drinks and then back to the house to pack this overnight bag to then go on the airplane and land and have the meeting first thing in the morning and then lunch meeting and then drinks and then back to the hotel sleep real quick get on the plane again right. You didn't want to have to take a whole lot of clothes with you in that scenario and you wanted what you were wearing to be comfortable throughout right so when you and I talked about suits during that era the accelerated age let's call it. Um, you know, it was about like, how do I still look put together, but maybe with a t-shirt or not with a tie, you know, maybe I'm wearing a sneaker as opposed to wearing, you know, a hard bottom lace up shoe. And, you know, this is the, this is the attitude that the suit took on. Like I was always a big fan of these things. Like, like I'm working, I'm wearing like a work jacket, but it's made of cashmere from, from our friend Massimo Alba. And like, to me, that with a matching pair of pants and a white t-shirt, was all the suit that I needed at that point, right? Mm -hmm. We're looking at the same sort of needs, but from a different angle in the Zoom age, which is like, I need to be comfortable because I'm sitting in one place for 12 hours, you know, like just talking to people back to back to back, which is oddly more exhausting than going to 12 meetings a day in different offices. And I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I, I personally find concur, it. completely concur. After this, I got to teach a law school class on Zoom and it's very exhausting. So, you know, I think that comfort is still going to be key. You know, there's a certain thing that you, you, you hit the nail on the head. There's something that a suit does for a man, which is that it, um, it makes him look good. It also provides protection in the sense that it is a uniform. And if somebody sees you wearing it, it, it connotes authority. It does all of these things for you. And, and, you know, I don't think that that's going away. What have we seen? pre-COVID accelerated through this period of time is the loosening of silhouettes, more stretch being added in, 
you know, more, uh, you know, monochrome dressing sort of taking the place of the suit, you know, like instead of it being like a loud plaid that, you know, I personally have a lot of affinity for. And, you know, I know that you do too. Like at certain points in our lives, you know, you need to have that, we'll call it a fuck you suit. You know, like you have to have that thing <laughs> that draws attention to you. But, you know, the it's been muted down. And I think that that trend will continue. I do also feel though, and, I, and I'm really starting to get a sense of this talking to my, my friends, my fellows in the retail world, um, and just taking the pulse, like the, the temperature in general, is the minute that we all get our shots, and the minute that we're able to congregate in person, be it with friends, with family, with coworkers, every moment is going to be a celebration right? At least for a year and a half, maybe two years, right? So I think people are going to be showing out, you know? And so every time you leave the house, it's going to be like Fat Tuesday when, you know, when we're finally able to go do that. And, and so, you know, in my opinion, even though things have gotten more casual, things have gotten more comfortable, I still think that people are going to get dressed once they're able to actually go outside and rub elbows with their friends and their peers again. And that's just me, but like, I, there's, there's, there's some data to back that up. Well, fingers crossed on that. And uh, I, I would tend to agree with you. Um, maybe back to pre-COVID times when you had to cover both hemispheres of your body uh, and, and let's stick to men here. Um, you know, business casual was, as I said, seven days a week. And yet, so many men were still getting it so wrong. Why do you think men, when really untethered from what some might consider the restrictions of the suit, have such a hard time putting anything stylish together? Well, you're take, again, like I said that as armor, you know, the suit as armor, suit of armor, right? A lot of men wore that because it, 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 it allowed them to not have to think about what they were wearing. And when you took that away only on Friday, that's when you saw, you know, golf shirts and bad pleated khakis. I've often had this thinking, feeling, you know, and dealing with customers a lot and talking to men from all different walks of life, be them really interested in fashion or not. For some reason, there was this barrier in a lot of men's minds. And I, and I break down sort of the, the market into three segments and we can talk about that. But, you know, there's a barrier in a lot of men's minds uh, to, to being able to get dressed. Whereas like their opinion in every other aspect of their life, you know, is, is rock solid and 100% correct, be it about politics or music or sports or, you know, liquor, whatever it is. But then once you get to clothes, it's just like, I don't want to stand out. And so, you know, I really think about the market in, in, in three segments. And this doesn't have any, uh, any actual data to back it up. But so, so bear with me. Well, but, but this has got the, the, you know, the graduate school of Peskowitz. Right. So you've got, you've got the 1%, right. Or maybe like a little bit less than 1% of guys who, you were speaking about earlier, this made to measure type of fella. And what they want is like the most prestigious, the most rare, the most expensive, the hardest to get. And they don't care if nobody else, except for the one other person in the world who could have gotten that thing and didn't get it, knows that knows what it is that they have. But you know, that's what they're looking for. And it could be, you know, a $14,000 Vacuna, you know, 
Keaton suit, or it could be, you know, the rarest of rare Jordans, or it could be, you know, being dipped in oil, leather, Boris Bijan. It could be any of those things, right? But the mentality is the same. I've got this, you don't have it. I'm special because of it, right? Mm -hmm. And they are educated customers. And the thing that you want to do, if you're a retailer and you want to get to this person, is just be able to provide that access. Treat them as a peer so that they know that you know what you're talking about and provide them access to these things that they can't get any other way. There are stores that cater to that, patron of the new and, you know, whatever. But, you know, they're uh, Maxfield in L.A., Just One Eye in L.A., you know, th those are the kind of stores for, this, for that kind of customer. Um, one step down from that, which is what I think probably you and I are in, and this is like a spectrum, but, you know, it's pretty, pretty wide, but let's call it 20% of men, which is maybe being generous, but let's call it 20% that you know know what they like know what looks good on them care about brands care about the care about the craftsmanship you know the innovation the rarity of something they care about these things who made it what's it made out of where was it made why was it made right like those questions yeah. and these are the people who usually in my experience want something that's only one or two standard deviations away from what they already own right so they're just looking to like continually upgrade and they're building a wardrobe for the long term right so these guys have price sensitivity but they're willing to pay for what they want right and and they know that they get what they pay for in certain circumstances so it's not necessarily i mean you know there's some hypey stuff in there but you know mostly it's like good solid menswear you know some prestige items but mostly just like i want to buy nice stuff that's made out of good materials made by someone who hopefully has a good story and that i God forbid, like, you know? And hope my body doesn't change. And hope my body doesn't change. I yeah. hope my body doesn't change. Or work so my body doesn't change. And work out for it. And so, you know, clothing then is part of a lifestyle, right? Like I eat these, I eat at these restaurants, I listen to this music, I work out in this way, and I wear these kinds of clothes. And they all speak to like a general message about who I am, yeah. right? Then there's like the 80% of men, right? And they really are, for some reason, you know, and this is the, this is the portion of it that, because, you know, when I was working at Bloomingdale's, and I'm sure the numbers have changed, but 60% of menswear was bought by women. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, this is, the, this is the guy who doesn't want to think about it, right? So he's really only worried about three things, right? Will my friends make fun of me for wearing this? Will my boss or my underlings snicker at me if I show up to a meeting wearing this, right? Will this garment prevent me from getting laid? If you can answer no to those three questions, they will give you all the money in their wallet to not have to think about it anymore, right? So there's like expensive people like this and there's people with no money that are like this, but they just don't want to care about it. And if they're left to their own devices, if they don't have, you know, like the resources or the spouse, to like deal with it for them, then, you know, they end up looking like schlubs. And the vast majority of men do not, at least, and this is changing, this is changing, but the vast majority of men don't prioritize the clothing that they wear over the car that they drive, over the food that they eat, over the house that they live in. And so, you know, it's that 20% of men who see it as part of like the total package. Um, and then that 1% will probably see it as more important than everything else, right? right. But then, that 80% of men are the ones that, you know, really screw up casual Friday and the rest of the week. And honestly, it doesn't matter what price point you're at. The most important thing that most men miss 
is how your clothes fit. You don't have to have such a great tailor. You, you could have a great tailor. I have a great relationship with my tailor, but I also go to my dry cleaner on the corner if I need to get a pair of pants shortened to the right length. And yeah. that's perfectly fine. If I need to get a jacket recut, that's another thing. Yeah. But, you know, like the way that your clothes fit says everything about you um, in terms of, and you can exaggerate it here and there. It doesn't matter as long as you know. Well, the laws of style. You know, I know it's somewhere up there on the shelf behind you. I'm not going to make you point it out. No, 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 no. It's somewhere that general region. It's it's a modest, much like the suit itself. It's got a very modest spine. But um, of the laws of style, and there were many, but were there any that spoke to you specifically? You know, what, what you do and what you know I do, you know, they're very different things. As a lawyer, certainly appearing professional, in front of your client, very important. Um, appearing competent, sort of checking all those boxes. Just don't show up to a meeting and immediately tie hands behind your back because you're not those things. But were there any laws that spoke to you, whether super specific or some of the more general ones? I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, show up for the job that you have or, you know, like the job that you want. Um, and I think that that's really important today still, right? And, and while things have gotten much more casual across the board, I really do believe, you know, that there are certain professions that like you need to look professional for. And, 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 and you know, I know you talk about that a lot in the book and, and thinking about like what a lawyer is supposed to be. Like a lawyer is supposed to be someone who you um, are entrusting, you know, with your, in a lot of cases, well-being you know um you know we deal more in the in the financial realm when we're talking about like what we're litigating for or you know you know right. negotiating right. about but you know i have friends who work in the public defender's office i have friends that are, you know all over the spectrum of the legal profession and like they show up every day well i mean they did before this right but they show up you know suit shirt tie because they need to inspire the confidence in the person that they're and there's other you know there's other professions be them you know medical or you know governmental that 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 require that still and i think you know if you saw joe biden give a press conference wearing a hoodie and some camo pants and some timberlands you'd be like what's going on here you know and, and i think that you know, th th there's still there's still a lot of relevance to that, even in this more much more casual age that we live in. And you know, will that evolve more over time? Sure, I think it will. But you know, as of right now, like if you're in a profession, if you're in a profession where you need to inspire confidence um, in the people around you, you should still show up wearing a suit. And like for me, like I used to wear a suit to inspire confidence in the people around me. Now, like the code has changed a little bit, you know, in terms of like what what I'm wearing inspires what and whom, you know, because like sort of like the general atmosphere of fashion has changed. And that's what's supposed to happen in my life. You know, mine evolves. But, you know, for you and, and, and for people in your cohort that, that, you know, need to really like inspire confidence in people, make sure that you feel trusted and that they know that you have your best interest, their best interest at heart, suit's still the way to go, man. Yeah. Well, and on some level that the details matter as well. Um... Well said. So let's let's maybe 
a branch of that tree is, is certain amounts of legacy and entitlement, I think, get locked up into certain modes of, of menswear in particular. Here, I'm, I'm talking about the bow tie, mm -hmm. uh, the power suit with suspenders, you know, the Gordon Gecko double-breasted pinstripe, right? Mm -hmm. what, what do you think about that? Like, is that something that, that you enjoy seeing designers riff on um, as maybe an ironic statement? Or do you think that, that those coded messages of sort of power and entitlement and further, you know, within the confines of certain environments, like you're not the 22 year old guy wearing that, or you're gonna, you're gonna lose your job, right? Cause you look like you're trying to dress up like the boss. Well, to answer your first part about whether or not I like to see designers play with that stuff, I always like to see designers play with things that are encoded, you know? So like be it, a double-breasted suit or a chalk stripe or, you know, contrast collar shirt, gold cufflinks, whatever it may be. Like, I always love to see designers mess with those codes, reinterpret them in different ways, uh, take the piss out of them to a certain degree. Like, I, I always love to see that. Um, and I do think that more and more, like, as those things become sort of the providence of an aging sort of demographic, you know, be it a, a very wealthy one, be it a very uh, powerful one, you know, as you just said, you're not, if you saw a 22 year old kid come in with, you know, his pants up to here and the suspenders and all that, you're like, who is this guy? You know, like, get out of here, what are you doing? Because, and that is because everybody else on his trading floor is wearing a Patagonia vest, right? And some, right. And, you know, some Bonobos khakis and a pair of Sperry's, like that's what they're all wearing. So, you know, at that point, it is sort of disingenuous to dress that way. Um, to all of our detriment, that it's the Patagonia and the and the spare, you know, like in my concur, mind. Concur completely. So, the, I hope that answers the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, you know, where does that stuff fit in to the world that we live in now? And the same way, it's interesting, right? I was thinking about this the other day because let's say that those things originated in, you know, the sixties and the seventies and, you know, it was the turn below an Asser shirt and it was, you know, th this and that. And in the eighties, it was the Giorgio Armani suit and blah, 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 blah. Um, all of that stuff was also interpreted by Ralph Lauren. Uh, all that stuff was interpreted by Dolce and Gabbana and like all of like sort of the big power, you know, tailored clothing brands that came out of the night, you know, eighties, nineties kind of time frame. And all of those things were reinterpreted by hip hop culture. You know, all of those things were sort of taken and flipped on their head by the hip hop culture. And now you're seeing like another era, another group of designers that are taking what was originally flipped and interpreting it farther. So mutating it even more, you yeah. know, and, and, and like, so if I saw a pair of suspenders in, uh, you know, in Ahmed Leon Doré collection, you know, with like a double-breasted suit that he did with Drake's, then I would be like, that's pretty cool, you know? Like, oh, he's taking, the taking it back to suspenders. Or, you know, you saw like, you know, a necklace made out of gold cufflinks and, uh, you know, Kirby did it or something. I don't know. You know, there's plenty of people out there that could, that could take that mantle and, and, and pass it down one step further into like the mutation of what it could all be. And I would find that to be extremely cool. And I would love to see that because I love things that are 
again, like one or two standard deviations away from what, what they started out as. So you know what it was and you know that it's now been morphed into something completely different. To me, that, that that's super exciting. I love that. Um, but yeah, I mean, showing up wearing the full gecko when you're a 22 year old broker, that's probably not the move. Well, so let's let's get some PESCO style inspirations, whether they're past or present. And I'm speaking here about men or women, but yeah. I think for you, most likely men, men of style, um, who you either, I don't want to say emulate because I don't think you'd admit to that, even if you did, but um, you know, who you just respect. I have emulated some of the people on this list. <laughs> um, I won't say how or when, but I, I thought about this. I, I thought about who I would mention here. And there's, there's obviously always my, you know, contemporaries, the guys that I spent a lot of time with on the fashion circuit that, you know, inspire me and also I'm friends with, you know, and, and I think that that's true of a lot of men, right? Like a lot of men I think are inspired by the people around them just as much as they are by probably more so than like influencers or whatever. It just so happens that the people that I hang out with a lot are really well dressed. So, you know, you got to say Eugene Tong, Nick Wooster, Nick Sullivan, um, guys like Mr. Kamoshida from uh, United Arrows in Tokyo, um, George Cortina, you know, like those kinds of guys are like, either, you know, super experimental in the way they dress or just like super, super elegant, you know, but like the top of the top of the top, you know? And so I always am inspired by them. And I, and, and I would say all those guys effortless. It yeah. appears effortless, which yeah, I mean, is kind of what a lot of us want. And I don't know what that is in men where you want to be insouciant about it. It's like, yeah, just threw the shit on, but it is, it is a driving force, I think, in a lot of men's style choices. Well, you have to put in the work, right? You have to put in the work to look like you're not working at all, right? And I always say that it's just I buy things because I love them. You know, I, I purchase things because they make me feel a certain way when I see them or they remind me of something from this era or it's just a better version of something I have. I immediately take it to the tailor. I immediately get it hooked up and then I might not wear it for two years. Right. right. But it's there and it's ready to go for whenever the moment occurs. Right. So it's like you put in the work on the front end and then it's easy to look effortless because like I always say, when I pack for a trip, I mean, fashion weeks aside, you know, but when I pack for a trip, I just put like one, maybe two colors in the bag. I don't say like, oh, well, I'm going to need like this suit. I'm like, no, I need light blue and dark blue for this trip. Basta. That's it. And so I'll just grab a whole bunch of things, throw it into the into the carry on. And then when I get to where I'm going, just combinations, because I know that everything in there will work together. And so, you know, like that's the way my job, or, you know, like maybe it's brown and white or like olive and khaki or whatever it is, you know, like, but just do that. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. And I think that some of the Nick Wooster would never do that, but I, you know, the rest of the guys on this list, I think all would ascribe to a similar sort of uh, thought process, but you know, other people that I've been inspired by over the years, I mean, Bruce Springsteen, certainly. Um, Michael Caine, you know, in a lot of his roles. And I mean, yeah. his eyewear was just crazy. Uh, Leonard Cohen, double-breasted suit, no tie. He was the first person to do it as far as I, as far as I could see. Um, Brian Ferry, double-breasted suit with a tie, you know, killing it. Like, like a thin, super thin tie, yep. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, coming, coming from where I come from, you know, hip hop was super 
influential. So guys like Raekwon and Nas and Big Daddy Kane and Rakim, like you look at the way that they dress. And a lot of that is what inspires, you know, this next generation of designers that are coming up now, as I mentioned earlier, um, have always been a huge fan and sort of like idolized Hiroshi Fujiwara, um, the designer, the collaborative genius and, and founder of Fragment Design. And he's always wearing like the flyest stuff that no one can get anywhere. Uh, you know, and then there's plenty of like fictional characters, but oh, you know who I was, you know who I've been looking at a lot lately? Who's is the King of Bhutan. Uh, Have you seen the way this guy dresses? Well, I'm not even, even going to try to pronounce his name because it would be disrespectful. But like right. I was, I used to be one of the people that Vanity Fair asked to do the best dress list. And so his right. name was always on it. And I was like, what, what is this guy doing on here? And it's incredible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, in different parts of the world, right? They, they are not, they'll wear Western dress, sure. but they are unfettered by having to put pants on, right? And I remember I had Yoli Tang on the show and she was like, I think unisex fashion is what fashion is. And I grew up in a world where the sarong was worn by men and women and still is. And, you know, it's the most comfortable thing to wear. And I will admit, I will raise my hand and say during COVID, I've walked around the apartment in a sarong and a dress shirt and even a tie on and it looks a little bit disjointed, but from you know the top up, I still look professional. From the bottom down, I am damn comfortable. And you know, but but this guy, he's putting it together in a very high lux way. Oh my god, the color combinations, the patterns, and you know, and he'll do it with Western dress. I remember the first time, and obviously, you know, this is a different culture, but you know, I remember the first time I went to Tokyo. And I went to the United Arrows flagship store in Harajuku. And I was meeting Pogi there or something. I don't remember exactly why I was there. But that store is four stories. Um, that's the ground floor, which is, you know, like sort of the more pop culture-y stuff, you know, like some of the collaborative products. The basement was like heavy duty designer, European and Japanese designer mixed together. The third floor or the second floor uh, was, you know, tailored clothing, sort of haberdashery, very, very European, very Italian, very English, you know, like all of it mixed together, but a lot of Japanese manufacturers in there as well. And the top floor was their formal wear and they had tuxedos and kimono right next to each other. Wow. And, you know, to me, that was like one of those aha moments, you know, where it's just like, because in, in Japan, in Tokyo, it's very, very traditional. I mean, through all of Japan, but like, you know, a kimono is even more dressed up than a tuxedo, right. right? And so, you know, depending on the formality of the actual event, one is more appropriate than the other. And, you know, same thing with the King of Bhutan. I mean, you know, you can see him looking real dashing in a tuxedo with like a cummerbund, but then, you know, like then with the whole robes on and the gold boots and like, he's just <laughs> crushing it. You know, and it's just let's 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 pivot slightly. It's it's like a five degree pivot. How about designers? Like who is speaking to you in the menswear design space these days? I mean, it's, it's still a lot of the people that I've always loved. Uh, you know, I probably number one for me is still Dries Van Noten. Um, you know, I, from a career perspective, such consistency and such variety, you know, at the same time. And I, and I just have 
an enormous amount of respect for that. And I, I remember they did a retrospective at the Louvre a couple of years ago that I had the pleasure of actually walking through with um, Dries himself. And, and, you know, the way he set it up was instead of it doing chronological, it was based on inspiration, you know? So it's like, here are the collections that were inspired by Japan. Here are the collections that were inspired by graffiti uh, and, you know, pop art. Here are the collections that were inspired by, you know, different regions of Spain and, you know, the Moors and all these different, and it's just, you know, just a remarkable amount of like base material. And yet the clothing remains so consistent, you know, like the silhouettes remain consistent, the construction of the garments, you just can't beat it as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think Kim Jones is doing a great job at Dior. Uh, uh, I'm interested to see what, and you know, like his men's couture for Fendi was like, you know, there's a couple of men's pieces in there, but we'll see how that develops further. Um, you know, but you know me, man, like I love the, I love the independent guys. I've been rooting really hard for Nicholas Daly for a few years now. Okay. Uh, love Nick Daly, love what he does. Um, you know, here in America, I had the pleasure of spending some time with, with Teddy from ALD last week and, you know, got a lot of respect for the business that he's building. Really, really cool stuff he's doing. Uh, Brendan, you know, Noah, his brand, just really, really strong. Uh, you know, there's a there's a few other guys that I, that I love. Out in LA, I love Second Layer. Um, you know, obviously we mentioned Emily, Bodie, uh, you know, but I still wear like, I still wear a lot of Masmo Alba, you know, I still wear like a lot of weird Japanese brands that, that you know, like Boot and Bloom and like these other things that, you know, I've only found on those trips when I've been able to go. Uh, let let me, let me ask you this. Are you, um, because you obviously have a closet that is, that is vast. You, you may have dedicated a child's room to it, but um, do you, do you thrift and do you, do you have turnover with your garments? Are you, um, you know, are you one that sort of views, hey, I'm going to wear this and I, I, I love it, but after I wear it because it is so distinct, I'm going to pass it on to the next great wearer of this garment. I do that if it's friends. I, I give away a lot of clothes to friends. Um, I donate stuff that's, you know, that's been used, not not used into the ground, but, you know, that that isn't really going to you know, fit the bill for me or, or anyone, mm -hmm. you know, that I'm particularly close with anymore. Uh, so things do get rotated. Now I keep a lot of stuff. I keep a lot of stuff for reference, you know, like something I might've worn something into the ground and blown the ass out of this pair of pants, but I still love that pocket, you know, and that pocket could come in handy down the road, you know? So I hold on to those things or, you know, certain like military or workwear pieces that, you know, of a certain vintage, you always hold on to those, whether or not you wear them. You sound like a designer, Josh. Is that is that ever? I mean, you know, so I feel like I've lived lives as a guy who's into his 50s now, you know. Would you ever design? You know you could. I would never call myself a designer, even though, you know, I've taken flat pattern and draping classes. I'm not of that skill set particularly, but I've worked in product development quite a bit. I really enjoy it. Um, I love working with people that are really smart and talented and, you know, sometimes could use a little perspective, you know, that's something that I really enjoy doing. Like, Hey, I know you do it this way. Have you ever thought of it this way? 
you know, that collaborative effort is always something that I find to be very energizing. And uh, would I ever do it for myself? Yeah, I would consider it. Um, would I ever do it for another company, another brand? Yeah, I would, I would absolutely consider it. And I, I have done it on small scales before, but, you know, I've never been like designed by Josh Peskowitz. Well, actually once or twice, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I, as you said, close you no know, doors. I've done a lot of things, you know, myself, uh, not, at, not quite at your level of, of, of uh, professional acuity. I've never made bagels, man. <laughs> and I love them. <laughs> All right, let's, um, menswear, as we know, I mean, it really tends to categorize itself for, for some shoppers. You know, you get, you get people who, oh, I just, I love heritage workwear, you know, and I'm going to wear a work jacket and I'm going to wear, you know, my Timberlands or whatever every day. Like, that's my look. Uh, I'm into surfwear, you know, I'm going to wear Hawaiian shirts and surf t-shirts and the flip-flops. And why do you think men tend to gravitate to that categorization. It's almost costumey in a way. Um, and, you know, do you, do you think there's a value? I mean, can you really, this is maybe a broader question about inclusion and about really appropriating from certain groups, right? But yeah. can you ever really gain inclusion by dressing up like? You mean like being a poser? No, you can't get inclusion by being a poser. I kind of do mean like being a poser, I guess, in a way. I mean, so you're saying like, dude, get out of the work jacket if you've never chopped wood. Or is it like, where do you draw the line? Because some of those garments, while functional in one setting and made for one setting, do also work in other settings. Listen, to your point, almost everything that a, that a man wears that's considered like traditional clothing was either a military uniform or made for chopping wood in the first place, you know? So like those, let's like take that out of this context and, and just put that over there. Um, but, you know, dressing like a skater and not being able to skate, like that's a poser, you know, like dressing like a surfer and not being able to surf. Like, you shouldn't do that. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things about those individual wardrobes that are cool and that you sh could feel perfectly comfortable appropriating into your like own look. Take a sample. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And to your point, I, you know, I think that that sort of kit dressing, dressing like from a kit, like I'm going to paint by numbers and wear this kind of thing, that's something that I, I feel like doesn't affect the younger generation as much as it does people of you know, Gen X and like later millennial um, because for two reasons. The first being that the advent of social media for all the good and ill that it's done and there's plenty to be said about that uh, on another podcast. What it has done is sort of decoupled image from context, right? So when people are doing their little Pinterest mood boards or their Instagram, you know, curated feeds or whatever, it could have a punk next to a hip hop guy, next to, you know, an Onassis, next to whatever, you know what I mean? And so it's just like, where before, if you dressed like Tyler from, uh, you know, Taxi Driver, then you were a punk. And like, you better listen to punk music and you better have like a rancid tattoo on you somewhere. And like, that was who you were. And, and, and you couldn't appropriate any of that. Whereas for the younger generation, I think that the context and the meaning of like those different like ways of dressing and codes of dressing have been sort of 
at least muted, if not completely destroyed. And so what you end up with in the best of times, in the best of circumstances, is sort of like a choose your own adventure, right? right. Where you can actually develop your own sense of style by sampling, as you said, by sampling from all these different, you know, walks of life, uh, different sort of like places with uh, different cultural connotations. And, you know, the best designers have always done that, right? So like now it's like from a personal styling standpoint that people do that. So, you know, that I think is, is, like, the, is like the utopian hopeful view of self-expression in the future. Um, you know, and in the meantime, you know, for some people, listen, you know, fake it till you make it. If you wanna, if you wanna dress like a surfer before you learn how to surf, then, you know, go ahead and do it. Like, we'll see what happens when you get out onto the waves and, and you know. Indeed. Indeed. No, that's a good one. Or so you, you, in a way you alluded to or brought up, you know, the new generation and certainly an element of, of not only the marketing of products, but, but people's experience with fashion has been driven by influencers. Honestly, whatever the fuck that means these days, but um, let's just say people that have a lot of social media attention on them, whether that is for a true talent or for the, the reason that they just have a lot of media attention on them and that snowballs. Um, how do you feel about the role of influencers in the current fashion scene? You know, is it enabling? Uh, is it democratizing? Or is it a bastardization? So if you take it one step back and think about um, street style, which is something that is really sort of impossible to sort of look at now. Um, like what started out as street style, I think was actually really important because it was largely professionals in the business, you know, and I'm not saying this because people took my picture, but they did, you know, but it was largely professionals in the business. It was largely people who like loved clothes and wore them. This is what we were wearing. Like this is what we wore to fashion shows. This is what we wore to market appointments. This is just what we wore. And, you know, as we said earlier, like a man tends to look at his peers for inspiration more so than he looks at a celebrity, right? Because he's going to need to, that affirmation from those people too. Seeing regularly sized and shaped humans wearing things that were perhaps a little more daring from a color or a fit perspective or whatever it is, I think that that was actually hugely beneficial to like being able to relate to fashion in, in a better way. Um, you know, that first sort of like flush of that, of that time and the people who came out of that largely are not influencers because they have jobs, you know, they have jobs that are not professional influencers. Um, well, and they didn't curate their feeds on a, a minute by minute basis. Well, I mean, if you can, as, a, as with anything, if there's, if they, if there's an opportunity there and there's money to be made, eventually it will become irrelevant because more and more people will pile into it. Right. So, you know, I think at least in the men's space, I, I know that in the women's space, influencers are still much more important in like sort of like the marketing ecosystem. And, you know, it's looked at as a line item next to, you know, the Google ad sales and, you know, the building of the store, like they look at it like that in menswear. I think it's probably less helpful. Um, I do think that probably the shift away from the big, big time influencers that have millions and millions of followers, you know, sometimes they still move the needle if it's like a Kardashian or something like that. But you know, for the most part, I think, you know, smaller, smaller audiences, higher engagement is, is probably more authentically going back to that idea of 
this is someone who I see as a peer. This is someone who, you know, I actually trust the opinion of. But it's it, at the end of the day, like to me, at least it's super disingenuous. And that's just my opinion. Like I don't like, you know, listen, you can have nice cheekbones and still have another job. You know, like it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to do a step and repeat on your on your deck every day, you know, to like get your get your promotional joints in there. But look, you know, like I'm not going to take food out of anybody's mouth, even though most of them look like they don't eat. Um, you know, I'm not going to take any food out of anybody's mouth if that's if that's how you earn your living and people are willing to pay you eh, you know but like in terms of like what it means to me and what it means to like the marketing campaigns that i'm involved in i'm just like look you know if you guys feel like that's necessary let's try and find some authentic people who you know speak to an audience from like a real place right um but you know if you guys want to allocate those dollars someplace else i'm totally cool with that too right all right well josh this has been a great chat that's a wrap. Thanks so much for coming in. And um, any any last or parting words? Uh, Doug, you're an inspiration to millions. You're the original influencer. Uh, we all love you. And and you know, seriously, man. No, you do you do you do something that I have a lot of respect for. You carved your own path, and I think that it's really important for people to 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 acknowledge and recognize that there really wasn't such a thing as a fashion lawyer before Doug Hand. And so you know, like. It's an honor to be uh, to be your friend, occasionally your client, and uh, also a guest on your podcast. Well, thanks again. Thanks for the kind words. And I hope to see you in person real, real soon. I'll, I'll hold you to that. All right. Bye now. Bye, man. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hbaa.com llp.com and you can also follow us on instagram and twitter at at hand of the law thank you for tuning in and stay stylish